Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blow out of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey everyone and welcome to season three, episode number 13 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This for Friday, March 22nd, 2019. Lucky number 13 and lucky for you for tuning in today because ta-da, it is the Mail It In March Part 2 edition of the Bobcast. Now, um, the sound on this one may be a little tinnier than you're used to, or a lot, um, but the mere fact that we're able to uh, have this thing here for you to listen to is one of the marvels of modern technology today. Uh, much of the TSN uh, studio area where we do the podcasts and radio is being torn apart for renovations right now, so the normal line that I would call in on wasn't available today. So this is a kind of old school uh, microphone, iPad, emailing, audio files, not ideal, but what the hell, it is what it is. In any case, uh, it's Mail It In March Part 2, as I said. So yet an, another somewhat half-hearted effort as I conserve my energy for the arduous uh, three-month run coming up, April, May, June, the juggernaut that awaits me and all the other people who cover hockey for a living. And um, you can say what you want, but uh, one thing I don't lack is commitment. Commitment to mail it in March. So it's only the 22nd of March. A lesser man, I, I believe, would maybe have grown weary of mailing it in for the last three weeks, but not me. No sorry. I see everything to its end. So, um, you know, if you're going to espouse mail it in March, you've got to be in for all in for 31 days. And that's me, all in, a true believer. So the goal here is to get this thing done as quickly and painlessly as possible today, because once I am finished this, my day and weekend looks as follows. Uh, number one, I've got a nice bottle of wine in Italian, no doubt. And Cindy's homemade pizza tonight. And that's usually our Saturday night dinner, but we have some running around to do on Saturday. So pizza and wine at home tonight. Then right after dinner, it's going to be time to sit back and watch Mikey Mac Kitchener Rangers. Yes, my son, Mike McKenzie, the general manager of the Kitchener Rangers. Well, they're in game one versus Guelph tonight. It's the OHL playoff season. And uh, for me, it's kind of fun because I get to go full crazy hockey dad again, which is something to look forward to. Although... I must admit, if, if it's 7 nothing Guelph after two periods, it's going to bring back the all-too-real realization that emotional investment is a double-edged sword. And a hockey dad, and hockey dads out there know this, what I'm going to tell them right now, at any given moment, a hockey dad is just as likely to be pissed off about something as he is happy or pleased. That's sort of the hockey dad credo. In any event, uh, go Rangers. Although I do believe they're in tough here against a Guelph team that really loaded up uh, at the trade deadline. They've got all those kids that played in the World Junior Championship, got them by trade. Nick Suzuki, Marcus Phillips, uh, Sean Dursey all came over from the Owen Sound attack. you got Mackenzie Entwistle, who came in from the Hamilton Bulldogs. You've got the big fetter Gordiev. I think he was he Flint, I think. Um, and, and Guelph already had some big-time talent. they they got the 50-goal man, Isaac Ratcliffe, the... 
Philadelphia Flyer prospect. And I got to tell you, just as, as a quick aside, um, Dmitry Samarukov, the Edmonton Oiler prospect who plays on the blue line for the Guelph Storm and played for Russia at the uh, World Junior Championships, boy, is he ever playing well. He, he looks to me like a player. Um, he's one of the top defensemen in the OHL, and, and I just think he's a real force at both ends of the ice. So um, now, if it, if it sounds like I'm overplaying the underdog card for the Kitchener Rangers, you betcha. Playoffs 101. Uh, but I do think it has a chance to be a good series. Kitchener's won three of four versus Guelph since the trade deadline. But the Storm could well have another year we haven't seen yet. So should be fun. I hope it is fun. But if not, well, there's always more wine. Now, uh, that's that's tonight's plan. Uh, on Saturday, it's uh, Cindy's and I visit to the annual visit, the Rites of Spring. We're going to the Cottage Life Show at the International Centre out by the airport. And... Uh, we absolutely love that. It's That's the, the first real sign of it actually being spring is going to the cottage show. It makes you feel like it's not that far off. It's going to be fun. Winter's almost over. So, And then what we usually do after the cottage show is make a quick run to the cottage. And we're doing that. We're getting some renovations done up there. So we'll check in on that. And then on Sunday, it's um, off to Kitchener to visit our granddaughter, Blake. And there's nothing better than that. She is becoming quite a character so I'm looking forward to doing the granddad thing on Sunday. And who knows, it's quite possible that I might even end up in Guelph for game two at 2 p.m. on Sunday. But maybe I should wait until I see how things go tonight before I uh, suggest any eagerness to be there in person to, uh, to see a game. So it should be a great weekend. So the sooner we get going here on this podcast, the sooner the wine gets opened and uh, say no more. Now, uh, this may be a mail-it-in effort today, but I, I think there are some decent reasons for you to stick around for the whole Bobcast. We've got some great listener feedback. We've got a handful of some of the easiest questions I could find from the Bobcast email archives, plus what I think is a pretty good dissertation on this whole concept of exceptional player status and why maybe we need a change in terminology. Let's call it that. So I want to try to zip through some stuff fairly quickly. So I can get to uh, what, for lack of a better term, I'll call the Bobcast Career Corner. That will be spelled with K's naturally. Um, and of all the questions we ever get at bobcast at bellmedia.ca, we probably get more from aspiring writers, bloggers, journalists, broadcasters, media, on how to break into the business or specific questions about my job and how I do it. Probably get more of those than almost anything else. So I'll talk a little career advice such as it is and Try not to be the cynical old douche who says, don't do it, don't do it. Uh, in any case, uh, let's get after it, and let's start with some great listener feedback. First up is a letter from Tom. Hey, Bob, saw you on the panel the other night. You commented that Conor McGregor was an eejit. I laughed. That was one of my late dad's favorite put-downs, being Frey Glesga. He would have also said the boy's daft. Love your show. Keep up the good work. Tom. Well, Tom, thanks very much. What Tom's referring to is uh, there was a quiz question the other night about who did the uh, the boneless uh, Vince McMahon swagger walk better, uh, Brad Marchand, Conor McGregor, or I think it was uh, uh, something called the boneless emote from Fortnite. But I digress. Um, in any case, um, I said my dad would have called Conor McGregor an Egypt. 
and my dad being from Belfast and all, and I said, I'm not sure he would have said it to Conor McGregor's face, but then I thought about it and I said, yeah, he probably would actually, now that I think about it. But uh, I'm glad you appreciate that, Tom. The, the Irish, and in my dad's case, Northern Irish, have a way with words. My dad also used daft a lot. Stupid git was the other one. Don't be a stupid git, Bobby. Um, but he, Egypt was his go-to. Bobby, don't be an Egypt. Anyways, um, yeah, so uh, good recollections of our dads from, for Tom and I. Uh, next up. David McDonald says, Hi, Bob. Listening to episode 12 of the Bobcast and have two comments for you. First, I want to say how refreshing it was to hear you pushing for kids to pick up a different sport for the summer. I'm an Ontario scout for a United States Hockey League team. And in talking to a lot of kids, you can see the strain it puts on them, particularly late in the season. Although it's a different world now and year-round training is becoming less the exception and more the rule, I maintain that it's immensely beneficial to have players disconnect from the game to pursue other athletic endeavors. Keep up the amazing work, all the great wine recommendations, and if you're ever in Niagara-on-the-Lake, take a swing by Stratus Vineyards. I think you'd really enjoy their cab solve. David McDonald. Well, thank you, David. I will take you up on the offer to go to NT NOTL, as we used to call it in when we were visiting in La Crosse, and I'll take a swing by Stratus Vineyards for sure. And uh, yeah, um, summer hockey, boo to that. Um, I understand you have to train and you have to dedicate yourself, but uh, give yourself a break on the actual ice if you can. And pick up a lacrosse stick, a baseball bat, a soccer ball, whatever the case may be, set of golf clubs, or just lay on a hammock at a cottage and put your feet up. You'll, you'll be the better for it. Uh, next up, uh, from Charlie Bergen. Bob, if you like war shows, and I do believe you do, may I recommend Our World War on Netflix? They took letters and stories from World War I and made it into a miniseries. I found each episode hard to watch because they were intense and realistic, kind of like a punch to the gut, but afterwards you just go, wow. These are real stories dramatized, and at the end they say what happened to the characters, well worth a watch. Well, thank you for that, Charlie. I will be sure to put that on my uh, uh, to-do list uh, to watch from Netflix. I should uh, give you the quick update. I think in the most recent episode, or one of the most recent episodes of the Bobcast, I touted Secret City, the Australian uh, um, political drama. I'm still watching that. It's season two, or the most recent season, watching that. It was good. I think I mentioned before, uh, for foreign... Subtitled versions, The Break, the French-Belgian series is very good, as was Deadwind, the Finnish one. Now, a bit of a game changer, um, fell off my wallet and got a subscription to Crave, which gives me all the uh, HBO and Showtime shows. So we've expanded our horizon from Netflix, and um, James Duthie had been urging me to see Escape at Danamora, which I believe is an HBO show that was on Crave. And it was, as advertised, very, very good. Uh, great job by, was it Roseanne Arquette or Patricia Arquette? I forget. Patricia Arquette, I think. Any case, um, she did a great job. Benicio Del Toro was fantastic in that. And the funny thing is, the, the cool thing about Escape at Danamora is that I've actually driven right by the prison. Because if you drive from Canton, New York, where St. Lawrence is and where Mike played uh, college hockey, and you drive from from Canton, New York, to Burlington, Vermont, 
for a game with the Catamounts, um, you quite likely are going to go through Danamora and Clinton and uh, see the big prison there. So that was kind of cool. So Escape at Danamora, if you get a chance to see that, jump right in. Really good. And um, on, uh, yeah, that was on Showtime, I think, not HBO. On, sh on HBO, saw season three of True Detective. Man, that was good. Very slow moving. Uh, it's got a different pace to it. Uh, love season one of uh, True Detective many years ago. Um, never really got into season two. Well, I think that was the Vince Vaughn one as much. But uh, this True Detective season three, highly recommend it. And uh, now I don't know what I'm going to do because there's so many good shows on Crave and Netflix and HBO and Showtime and you name it. Not enough time in the day. Okay, next letter comes from Willis. Uh, Willis says, Dear Bob, before you even got on to recommended reads in your mail-it-in March edition of the Bobcast earlier this month, I had a book to get you through this coming summer. John le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Why had this timeless take on the Cold War already come to mind? Well, as you were outlining your plans for semi-retirement after the 2019-20 season, uh, the TSN Draft Rankings, World Juniors, Naples, Your Cottage, etc. I realized that you reminded me of George Smiley, played by Alec Guinness in the amazing 1979 BBC mini miniseries, who in Tinker Taylor is pulled out of retirement to get Britain's house, or at least the MI6 wing of it, back in order. Much of the tension in the novel comes from Smiley's initial reluctance to return to the world of espionage and the endless task of dealing in loyalties bought and sold. Here he is, for instance, towards the start of the book, mapping out how exactly he will leave everything in London and, quote, as you said, take a major, major step back from that into a much quieter life down the road. And then I won't even, I won't go into it because it's a little too much detail for everybody, but Willis provided a George Smiley uh, quote um, that basically talked about the, the difficulties in getting back into it or whatever. Anyways, um, it doesn't work, of course. Uh, Willis goes on to write, and Smiley ends up saving civilization as we know it, just as we all know that whatever sunset provision you finally drop with TSN, however many radio hits your new contract limits you to, it will still keep you in the game and at the top of your game, just like George Smiley. Keep up the great work. That's from Willis Hart in Iowa City, Iowa. Well, thank you, Willis. That was a nicely thought out, nicely written and constructed letter. Very impressed. Uh, next up, Patrick Rooney says, Hey, Bob, happy mail it in March. Just finished listening to the latest podcast and enjoyed it as always. Happy to hear that your retirement plans include continuing to do some work with TSN so hockey fans don't completely lose your voice. I could never have faulted you for being fully retired to spend all your time in cottage country. My, my family has a place on Lake of Bays, but since you're, new, you're not doing all that's left, since you're not doing that, all that is left for me to hope is that you keep doing the podcast as well. Uh, you mentioned on the latest episode that you didn't have many books lined up for the summer, and I've read a few lately that I thought you might enjoy. The first I wanted to mention is called Cork Dork by Bianca Bosker, who quit her job as a tech reporter to investigate and eventually become a sommelier. She's a great writer and it's a fascinating subject, not to mention you get to learn a lot more about wine. 
The other one I wanted to mention is a book called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are by Franz DeWall. It's essentially about animal intelligence and just a really interesting book with lots of great stories about animals and not too much science. Not sure if you're interested in that sort of book, but I really enjoyed it, so just wanted to mention it. I've had a lot of time to read lately because my fiancé and I quit our jobs last summer to travel through Asia for a year before we find a place to settle down and get on with real life. It's been a fantastic trip so far, but on the days when I've missed being at home in Toronto, having your podcast has been a great way to get a little taste of home that helps pick me up. Before we left, the, po before we left, the podcast was a great way for me to decompress from tough days at work while I walked my dog. So I also just wanted to thank you for the work you do putting it together and let you know how much I and I'm sure so many other people appreciate it and you. Cheers from Patrick Rooney. Well, isn't that it's really honestly, Patrick, that's very touching. And um, one of the one of the benefits of doing the Bobcast is the fact that there are people like yourself who express such a sincere warmth for enjoying it and uh you know, Gary Lawless uh, there with the Vegas Golden Knights says he always listens to it when he walks his dog. And it, it's really nice to hear, to get that positive feedback that people kind of like it because it's a little bit off the wall. It's not for everybody. And uh, and that's pretty cool, um, packing up and with the fiancé, packing in the job, traveling. And then uh, I, I commend you on that. I probably would never have the balls to do um, anything like that. I always kind of live my life... Uh, kind of between the lines doing the uh, following the path more traveled than the path less traveled so uh, kudos to you and your fiance on that and uh, thanks for the book recommendations i've read cork dork really 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 enjoyed it and i highly recommend it um to anybody who's at all interested in wine and um the one on the animals and science hmm that's not exactly my wheelhouse but i'm gonna i'm gonna think think about that i'm gonna go to goodreads study it and decide whether that's something I should uh, take the plunge on. The next email is both listener feedback and a question. Hi Bob, my name is Martin Cormier and I live in Saint Antoine, New Brunswick. I'm an injured Afghanistan veteran with PTSD and chronic pain. I listen to your podcast with passion. Thank you Bob for taking the time to do your Bobcast. Very much appreciated. Whenever I need to switch moods I'll listen to you and your colleagues at TSN. TSN staff rocks. Now, referencing the upcoming NHL draft, considering the Montreal Canadiens' first-round pick might be in the same range of Ryan Suzuki, Nick Suzuki's younger brother, do you think Montreal would target Ryan to bring the brothers together? Would it be something they would recommend or stay away from? If you could explain why, that would be great. Thank you so much. P.S. You are the man. Well, Martin, a couple of things here. First off, um, thank you for your service. Uh, the fact that you served and were injured in Afghanistan, and obviously traumatically so with PTSD and chronic pain. Um, it's uh, it's amazing. Uh, you know, I joke about mail it in March. There's there's no mailing it in when you provide the kind of service that you provided um, for us in Afghanistan. So. Um, don't thank me. Uh, thank yourself, and I'm sure on behalf of all the Bobcast listeners, we thank you as well. And um, as far as the um, the upcoming draft goes, um, you're right. Um, Ryan Suzuki is a, a top prospect. I haven't done the 
the the latest draft rankings, and I didn't even look at the midterm rankings, but I, th- I think he was in the top 15 um, off the top of my head. And um, I don't know whether Montreal will be picking there or not, but you're right, it could potentially be in the wheelhouse. I think the chances are he's probably gone before Montreal, but I'll know better as the as the draft rankings get more finalized, uh, closer to the actual draft. Um, and yeah, Nick Suzuki is a Montreal prospect. And as I mentioned off the top, I'll be watching him play tonight on television um, in the first game against Kitchener. Uh, very skillful guys, talented family from London, Ontario. And, and I don't think that any organization makes a conscious effort to try and hook brothers up in the NHL. Um, I don't know that they necessarily shy away from it, but I don't think they go to any great lengths. If if Montreal thought Suzuki was the best player available when they're picking, they would take him. If they didn't, they'd take somebody else. And and to be honest, uh, you know, there, there could be a, a little bit of a downside to the whole brother thing. Now, the Sedins were obviously a different situation entirely. They were a package deal from the get-go and uh, being twins and all. But... Um, you know, we've we've seen brothers play together, whether it's the stalls or the bends or whatever the the case may be. And the next question here, from uh, and and listener feedback, is on this very same subject. So let's get to that. But again, uh, uh, Martin, thank you for the uh, the email, and once again, thank you for your service. And uh, I hope you get some relief from your chronic pain and uh, you deal as well as you can with your PTSD. Okay, next question comes from Michael Bede. Hi, Bob. I hope you're enjoying mailing in March and that you spend no time at all preparing to answer this question. In my completely subjective opinion, the NHL seems to have a disproportionately high number of brothers playing in the league compared to other sports. Families like the Sutters, the Hulls, the Stalls, the Millers have been playing in the league for many years. The next generation of brothers are coming into the league now with the Svechnikovs, Hughes, and even the Suzukis. That said, um, aside from the Sedins, for obvious reasons, it seems pretty rare for teams to sign brothers to simultaneous deals. The Calgary experiment of Freddie and Dougie Hamilton was short-lived, and the Shens failed to meet expectations together in Philadelphia. In your experience, do most teams try to avoid bringing pairs of brothers into the same organization? I would imagine that some GMs would like to avoid any complicating factors especially if one brother is significantly more talented than the other. See Dougie and Freddie Hamilton, Jamie and Jordy Ben. If the less talented brother gets waived, traded, or even benched, I could see how the family politics might become an issue. Thanks in advance for your thoughts, and I hope you'll consider keeping the Bobcast going even into your retirement, even if the focus shifts away from the daily grind of the league. All the best. Michael Bede, and Mike's from uh, Henderson, Nevada. Uh, Henderson, Nevada, Lake Las Vegas. I remember being there for uh, NHL general managers and board of governors meetings uh, back coming out of the lockout in 2004, if I remember correctly. Uh, so there we go. Uh, Michael, yeah, I think um, I think you're right. I think more organizations than not see the potential pitfalls of having brothers. Keep in mind, Jordan and Eric Stahl played together as well. Um, but it, it can complicate things a little bit, and uh, but it's a ruthless game, hockey, and uh, I think brothers realize that uh, as well and understand that uh, those things can just happen over the course of time, and uh, 
And so for that reason, if, if it makes sense to have brothers on a team, they'll have them. But I don't see necessarily see teams going crazy out of their way to make that happen. All right, that's it for uh, listener feedback for this episode of the Bobcast. It's a great job on the listener feedback, by the way. And if, if you do want to uh, wax poetic on just about anything, uh, by all means, shoot us a line. Bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And uh, I love listener feedback. I mail it in March. Hardly requires any answers. I can just read it. It's up big minutes. We're in good shape. Uh, it is mailed in March, but uh, we still have to pay the bills here on the Bobcast. And some of the folks who help us pay the bills would be Untuck It. So here's the mail it in March read of the Untuck It ad. Hey guys, it's never a good look when you untuck a long bulky dress shirt. That's why Untuck It makes shirts specifically designed to be worn untucked. Casual shirt that's not too long, not too short. Untucked shirts are a go-to for any occasion from casual to dressy and with more than 50 sizing options, every guy, even me, can find the perfect shirt. Go to untuckit.com and check out all the new arrivals. Use the promo code BOBCAST for 20% off your purchase. Visit Untucket at their Canadian retail store in Sherway Gardens or shop online anywhere. Stop hiding your shirt with your pants and your pants with your shirt and don't put your pants on your head. Untuckit.com. Use promo code BOBCAST, B-O-B-C-A-S-T. There you go. Uh, Chris from Canada, who does the show notes, had some purchased some Untuckit shirts. Uh, his lovely wife, PT, uh, says he looks fantastic in them. So maybe in addition to a cheap bottle of scotch as payment for doing show notes, um, we'll be able to work an extra Untuckit shirt into Chris from Canada's payment. All right, let's uh, get down to some questions here. And as I said off the top, I, I look for the easiest, no research required to answer them for mail it in March. So here we go. Hey, Bob, I'm a fellow Bob from Gatineau, Quebec, and I have a question regarding the referees. Um, the referees have the name Mick on the side of their jersey. Why is that? Well, that Mick, M-I-C-K, on the arm of the NHL officials is, of course, for Mick Magoo. And um, Mick Magoo, longtime National Hockey League referee, did over a 1,000 regular season games, over 60 playoff games, did the 2006 finals, um, retired from the NHL in April of 2008, and one of the most colorful characters to ever be an NHL referee. Um, he was one of the last referees to not wear a helmet and he always joked because he couldn't find one to fit and when helmets became mandatory for NHL referees uh, Mick looked absolutely ridiculous in his helmet and he knew it and wasn't ashamed to say that and uh, poor Mick had a stroke um, and blood clots at the base of his brain that was in mid-November and on November 23rd of, of last year, at the age of 62 years old, same age as me, as a matter of fact, um, Mick's family uh, took him off life support, and uh, that was it. So the, he worked as a supervisor for the, uh, the National Hockey League, and uh, as I said, one of the most uh, colorful characters and beloved guys in the game, and, and that's why the 
NHL referees and linesmen uh, have Mick as a tribute to him. Next up, uh, this question couldn't get easier. Hi, Bob, just a question. Are you related to my great aunt, Bid McKenzie? Uh, and that comes from Irene Fabian. Bid McKenzie, that's interesting. I've never heard Bid McKenzie before. A uh, short answer is, and the easy answer is no. My stock answer for when somebody says to me, oh, um, I know somebody who's related to you, I go, I bet you don't, because I don't have that many relatives. I'm not saying I don't have any, but, and certainly on the McKenzie side, very few. My dad was an only child. My dad's dad was an only child, and my dad's dad died when my dad was fairly young. Um, my dad's mom, my grandma Sally, um, she had one sister who never got married, and so there's not a ton, and she was, a, I believe her maiden name was Stratton. There's, there was not a ton of relatives on the Mackenzie or the Stratton side, certainly not very many that I'm aware of. I do have some on my dad's side, some relatives who are from the Leamington slash Windsor area in Ontario, but they're really distant relatives. And I, I would know if I had a, uh, uh, if somebody's great aunt was called Bid McKenzie, it would have to be somebody who was, uh, directly part of the family and, and no. And it's funny, I was at a uh, book signing for Everyday Hockey Heroes in uh, Barrie um, in the fall, in November. And uh, a woman and, and two younger people, a, a guy and a girl came up and they were absolutely 100% convinced that they were related to me in some way. And I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out what the connection was. And they were, I was getting them to explain it to me. I didn't want to be, be rude and just flat out say, no, I'm not related in any way, shape or form. Because they were operating under the very, very strong and distinct impression that we were related to each other. In any case, I couldn't make hide nor hair of, of the connection. And I, I don't believe that there was any connection. Um... And they were a little perplexed by that. But uh, nevertheless, um, not many Mackenzie relatives. And uh, the relatives I do have, um, I'm pretty aware of who they are. So sorry on the Bid Mackenzie thing, but I'm sure she's a great lady. Great name. And next question. Hi, Bob. I'm from New Waterford, Nova Scotia. I love the Bobcast. Who's the youngest captain in the NHL to win the Cup? That comes from Borden Cirque in New Waterford, Nova Scotia. And this one took me about three seconds to Google. <laughs> and it's actually in the Guinness World Book of Records. Sidney Crosby, 21 years old, 21 years, 10 months, five days, won the cup in 2009. And the only thing I'm having a nagging doubt on now is because I didn't look any further than that, I hope there's been no younger captain since then to win it that would knock Sydney out of the Guinness World Book of Records, but I think that's up to date. So there you have it. Okay, uh, next up, John McIntyre says, Bob, what do you think of Ryan Whitney and Paul Bissonette's podcast? And do you think more former players should do stuff like this, where it's more of a locker room talk, as opposed to the traditional retired player being on the regulated broadcast of some sort and not being able to show their true personality? Thanks, would love to hear your thoughts. John McIntyre. 
Well, John, uh, you're obviously referring to the Spit and Chicklets uh, podcast with um, with Wit and Biz Nasty, and uh, it's fantastic. Um, now, I don't listen to podcasts. Um, as I've explained before, I'm not sure why. I did for a while. Um, and if I did, I probably wouldn't listen to any hockey podcast, which is not a very nice thing to say to the people that are listening to my quasi-hockey podcast. But in any case, um, listen, I think, I know Ryan Whitney real well. I know the whole Whitney family, in fact. Uh, Ryan's brother, Sean, played at Cornell and played against uh, my son, Mike, at St. Lawrence. And when that would happen, I would run into the patriarch of the Whitney family, Big Dano, Dan Whitney, uh, just a terrific guy, uh, one of my favorite people that I've met along the way. Uh, we still email and text once in a while, not as much as we used to, but uh, he's a real colorful character, as you would expect. Um, it's a whole family of mass holes, and they, believe me, they appreciate the term, terminology of mass hole, and they take it in the spirit that it's meant as a compliment. But... Uh, Witt does a great job on spitting chicklets, and um, Paul Bissonette, it's interesting because when my son Mike got drafted into the OHL, he got drafted by the Saginaw Spirit, and it was in their first year of existence after they'd uh, moved from the, the North Bay Centennials, went to Saginaw, and um, Paul Bissonette was the captain of the Saginaw Spirit, and uh, so Mike got to see Biz Nasty, and Biz Nasty had... Just one of the best froze you've ever seen um, back in junior hockey in his Saginaw days. And uh, so, yeah, that was kind of cool. And, and quite aside from everything, um, Paul is a guy that I really get a kick out of. And I think he really gets it, and he's always gotten it. Um, great self-deprecating sense of humor. Amazing on-air presence. Now doing work, of course, for the Arizona Coyotes on radio but also into a whole bunch of stuff on social media and uh, and you name it. And uh, the spit and chicklets thing. And he's full of personality, as I said. He, he really gets how to present himself in a, in a real lighthearted and uh, fun way. And uh, I just think he's a really smart guy who's got a lot of things figured out in terms of um, how the, the, the core values of the game and... and uh, how to be involved with that, and uh, as I said, yeah, it's all good stuff. So yeah, a shout out to Wit and Biz and everybody on the Spit and Chicklets podcast, which anytime you look, it looks like to me like it's the number one hockey podcast or sports podcast out there. Uh, next question comes from Nathan in St. Louis. Hi, Bob. My question is about handedness. That's handedness in hockey. I've never played hockey, just a huge fan, and so I really don't know how to hold a stick. I'm left-handed, so would that make me a left-handed shot? I ask because it seems like teams are always looking for right shot players. This seems counterintuitive to me since less than 15% of the people are left-handed. Probably a simpler yes or no question compared to the ones you usually get, but I'm real curious. Thanks for doing the show. Well, I think the simple answer is uh, no. If you're left-handed, it doesn't make you a left-handed shot. There's lots of right-handed people who, who write right-handed, who shoot left-handed or golf left-handed. So I'm, I'm not sure what the genesis of that is. I did go to NHL.com, and I um, basically wanted to find out the, the split on lefts and rights. And um, 
Let's see here. So I, I, I filtered it for having played at least 10 games in the NHL. And uh, 472 left shots, uh, 280 right shots. And uh, of the 472 left shots, 317 are forwards, 155 on D. And on the right shots, 171 of the 280 right shots are forwards and uh, 109 are defensemen. So I'm not sure why somebody becomes a right shot or a left shot. I can only tell you this from experience in lacrosse. I went to a lacrosse, an OLA lacrosse clinic. I think it was a coaching certification thing. And uh, I think it's Ron McSpadgen who worked for um, the Ontario Lacrosse Association, gave a fascinating presentation on how in field lacrosse, in the United States, um, when kids are really young, if they want to determine handedness and what's the dominant side, um, they have a little trick that they do. And that is, so all, let's say there's 20 kids coming out for a lacrosse, to play field lacrosse. They line them all up and in, a, in a line all the way along. And the coach goes behind and pushes the player from behind, gently, but forcefully enough that you're going to move the person. And when the player gets the push, you look to see whether they lead with their left foot or their right foot. So what's the dominant foot? So if you push somebody from behind and the left foot goes out first, that would suggest the person should throw with their right hand or shoot right-handed. If you push the person from behind and their right foot goes out, that should say that the dominant foot is the right and if the dominant foot is the right, then the dominant hand would be the left. Think about it. When you throw a ball, you lead with, if you're right-handed, you lead with your left foot. If you throw left-handed, you lead with your right foot. So th that little exercise makes a lot of sense to me. But it, it was interesting. I, uh, when I was coaching hockey afterwards, I kind of did it after the fact. Because by the time you get to peewee hockey, everybody knows which way they shoot. And it was funny when you did the push exercise that... Sometimes a guy would be, you know, dominant with the left foot coming out first, but he was a left shot. It didn't make sense. So technically they would say that person's shooting incorrectly because the natural tendency should be to lead with this foot or that foot. And if I've made any sense, I don't know if no, but there's your answer. And I said I wasn't going to do any research, but I actually did. Lied. Okay, well, that's the end of the easy question portion of the Bobcast. Now we'll uh, deal a much more difficult and weightier issue on this question from Chris Lougheed, who writes, Any insider knowledge on why Hockey Canada denied Matthew Savoy exceptional status? Nobody, including the hockey pundits, are talking. and It is a terrible optic for the leagues and hockey press involved. There is a story there. Okay, well, in order to even talk about this story in any way, shape, or form, we need to fill in some background for folks that don't know a lot of the details. Um, Matthew Savoy is a very talented uh, young hockey player from St. Albert, Alberta. He was born January 1st, 2004, and uh, if you saw the Canada Winter Games, he played for Team Alberta, and he played exceptionally well. A very talented kid. He's eligible for this year's WHL Bantam Draft, and by all accounts, he is the clear, he's clearly the top prospect in that Bantam draft. 
I uh, should also point out that there's another player. He's from Burlington, Ontario, plays for the Don Mills Flyers of the Greater Toronto Hockey League, and represented Team Ontario at the Canada Winter Games, and his name is Shane Wright. And uh, Shane Wright has um, uh, another extraordinary talent who's been playing up a year, uh, as Matthew Savoy has. And uh, Shane Wright is clearly the top prospect available in this year's minor midget draft, um, even though he's a year younger than everybody else. Now I say clearly uh, available is because he applied for what's called exceptional status. And we saw John Tavares get this in 2005, Aaron Ekblad in 2011, Connor McDavid in 2012, Sean Day in 2013, and Joe Valeno in 2015. Um, so anyways, Shane Wright applied for exceptional status and, and received it from Hockey Canada. The belief is that Matthew Savoy also applied for exceptional status, but did not get it. Now, Hockey Canada doesn't put out any press release to say somebody applied for it and was rejected, and understandably so. These are 14 and 15 year old kids and you don't need to be putting out, national hockey bodies don't need to be putting out releases with a rejection as the headline. Um, but our business being what it is and the hockey world being what it is, there aren't many secrets. And, and the whole exceptional process, application process is supposed to be highly confidential and it is. I guess, as long as people want to keep it confidential. And, and in this instance, it became public knowledge that, that Savoy had applied along with Wright. So Wright gets it, Savoy doesn't, and suddenly now these questions that Chris Lawheater is asking are being asked by a lot of people, well, why didn't he get it? And it puts everybody in an uncomfortable position. And, and I don't think it's a cover-up at all. Um, as much as it is to try and protect these kids. Now, I don't know why, why Matt Savoy didn't get exceptional status. We can all take guesses and surmise. I should point out this, and I, I wrote a whole chapter of my book, Hockey Confidential, about growing up exceptional. And it's all about the exceptional process. And it was also all about Connor McDavid, but it was also about how the exceptional process came to be. And one of the things that was duly noted in, in that chapter of Hockey Confidential is that until, until Joe Valeno in 2015 in the Quebec League got exceptional status, this was exclusively an Ontario thing. And um, with, with Tavares, Ekblad, McDavid, and Sean Day. And um, I wrote at the time that the Western Hockey League greatly frowned on the whole concept of exceptional status. Now I should point out that the exceptional status process is administered by Hockey Canada, not the WHL, the OHL, or the QMJHL, although there's obviously a relationship between those CHL leagues and, and Hockey Canada. Um, so the fact that the WHL is just generally speaking doesn't believe in the concept. Is that, an, is that a reason why Matthew Savoy wasn't given exceptional status? Guess it could be if you doubt the autonomy of Hockey Canada to make the decisions. 
But one of the things we'll never know is, is it's not just evaluating what a player does on the ice. It's evaluating his maturity off the ice, a whole host of factors that are involved. And, and so it, it doesn't do anybody any good, and it does a disservice to Matthew Savoy and his family to speculate on why it may or may not have happened. And uh, so it, it becomes a dodgy sort of thing. And I'm, I've always been uncomfortable with knowing who applied for exceptional status because we don't want to know who got rejected because they're teenage kids and they should be, you know, they're not rejected. They're not failures. My goodness, it's exactly the opposite. Matthew Savoy is an elite hockey player for his age and he's probably going to do great things. Um, but anyways, that's the, the, the situation. Um, now, it also gets more complicated than that. There's all sorts of speculation that Matthew Savoy wasn't 100% certain that he wanted to play in the Western Hockey League right off the hop. Um, it might depend on who drafts him, which team has his rights. Uh, might be a lot of factors. There was all sorts of speculation that maybe he wanted the exceptional status in order to try and play Tier 2 hockey um, because he ultimately is going to go play college hockey in the United States. And will, would Hockey Canada deny an exceptional status application simply because the player doesn't want to play in the Canadian Hockey League? And in fact, um, you know, not long after the Shane Wright announcement that he'd been accepted, um, and by extension and, and, and not being mentioned that Matthew Savoy hadn't been approved for exceptional status, Savoy announced that he was committing to go to the University of Denver. Um, where his brother Carter is also committed to go, I believe a year earlier than Matthew. So it, it gets into a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, is exceptional status only for players who go to junior hockey, go to the, go to the Canadian Hockey League? Um, and, and it raises all sorts of questions on, on that front. Um, one of the things I would like to see, and, and I can't take credit for this idea because it belongs to Mark Edwards, who uh, works for HockeyProspect.com. He's a scout who does the NHL Draft Black Book. And um, he's on Twitter. And as I say, go to HockeyProspect.com. Um, Mark's a really good guy. See him around the rinks a lot of time. Um, and he's, he's, he's a thoughtful guy. And he mentioned that he thought the term exceptional um, creates uh, an unrealistic set of expectations um, almost a, a burden for the player that gets it. And, and I really think he's on to something here. And th think about this for a moment. I mean, when John Tavares came along, yes, he was exceptional. Um, and there was no exceptional player application process in place. The OHL created that process for John Tavares. But Commissioner Dave Branch recognized very early right after the Tavares decision, that this is not something that the individual leagues, the OHL, the QMJHL, or the WHL should be administering, that this is something that should go to Hockey Canada. And as I said, hockey, and as I wrote in Hockey Confidential, Hockey Canada has a very complex process application that includes a lot of stuff that doesn't have anything to do with hockey off the ice and, and sociologists and psychologists and, and you name it. And they really do drill, are supposed to drill down on it, and I believe that they do. Um, because 
Severus got exceptional status, and then Aaron Ekblad got exceptional status, and Ekblad was the first player taken in the OHL draft and went on to be a top pick in the National Hockey League. And because Connor McDavid was the first player taken in the OHL minor midget draft and went on to become first player taken and and obviously a generational talent in the National Hockey League, that word exceptional became a euphemism for franchise player in the National Hockey League. And then along came Sean Day in 2013, and Sean Day wasn't the first player taken in the minor midget draft, and I think he was about a third-round pick to the New York Rangers um, in his draft year. And then Joe Valeno came along, and um, you know he ended up being a first-round pick to the Detroit Red Wings last year, but you know not just barely a first-round pick. And, and certainly not in the same category of prospect as Tavares, Ekblad, McDavid. Um, so anyways, back to Mark Edwards' initial point. When, when you name a Sean Day or a Joe Valeno exceptional, give them exceptional player status, you're creating the false expectation that these guys are going to be franchise players in the National Hockey League the way that Tavares, Ekblad, and McDavid were. And that's not the case. So Mark's recommendation, and and I think it's a good idea, is that instead of calling it exceptional status, call it early entry application or early entry status. And all you're basically saying is you've got a kid who's so good as a 14-year-old and you've got a major bantam age kid who's so good playing with a year up with minor midgets that it would not be in his best development interest to stay another year with the minor midgets and that he should jump up and play um, in the OHL, the QMJHL, or the WHL. And once the player has played a year in that league, the early entry tag's not going to stick. I mean, nobody cares when you're 17, 18, 19 years that you got early entry into the league and you're no longer called exceptional. So I, I think that one makes a lot of sense. And... Uh, I'll be curious to see if maybe down the road something along those lines can change. Uh, Follow-up to that is from Nelson Johnson, who says, Hey, Bob, love the podcast. Next time you have a day off in Washington, D.C., head out 30 minutes west to check out some of the Virginia wineries. They have some fantastic cabs, pinots, and Norton wines. The two that are must-visit are the winery at Bull Run and Potomac, uh, Potomac, Potomac, I can't even talk today, the Potomac Point. My question is, do you think Matthew Savoy will end up playing at the University of Denver for David Carl, or is his commitment just a ploy to have the WHL reverse their decision on his exceptional status? His brother Carter's committed to a year earlier to you. Thanks a lot, Nelson Johnson. Well, first off, exceptional status decisions can't be reversed. Um, we're not even supposed to know that the player applied for exceptional status, never mind reversing it. And... Um, Matthew Savoy will do whatever is in Matthew Savoy's best interests uh, for him as a kid, for him as his family, and for the development of the player. And if that means playing junior A hockey wherever, until such time that he's ready to play at Denver, um, then that's what it'll be. Um, And if he gets drafted by a team in the WHL um, that he happens to want to play for and he thinks it's in his best interest, to go uh, as a 16-year-old and play there in that league, then then that's what he'll do. I realize it's not a definitive answer, but uh, for all these elite kids coming up through the system, they're going to do whatever makes the most sense for their development, as they should.
Okay, that's pretty much the uh, question portion of the Bobcast over for this episode. Um, although, as I mentioned off the top, um, welcome to the Bob McKenzie Career Corner. That's career with a K, corner with a K. Wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and and so many of the questions um, we get are, are repetitive, so you wouldn't want to read them every week. But one of the things we get a lot of, and, and I mentioned this before, is you know, young people trying to get into the media business, they want advice. You know, what do I do? How do I get noticed? And, you know, and I'm not sure I ever have any answers. So um, I do want to talk some career stuff. Um, but before I do, I'm going to offer up this qualifier just so we're absolutely clear. Um, so much of what I experienced to break into the business, it happened so, so long ago. And I mean, the media universe has changed so radically in my 40 plus years in the business. This actually, 19, so yeah, so 2019 is actually going to be my 40th anniversary of working full time in the business. So I, I graduated from Ryerson in April of 79. And so here we are 40 years later. So I'm probably the least qualified person in the world to offer up any current advice to anybody that's looking to break into the business or make their way. But, I mean, qualifications have never stopped me. So I want you to take all of this stuff that I'm going to talk about here for what it's worth. And that is, it's just kind of a stream of unconsciousness. And and maybe there's a thought or two or a, a helpful hint or two that somebody might be able to pull out. And I guess I should start off by saying the media business is totally in the tank. And and I don't say that to discourage you from a career in media, but we have to be brutally honest. There isn't a week or certainly a month that goes by in our business when someone I know, usually someone who's pretty good at their job, isn't losing it because of cutbacks or whatever. And, and the field just seems to be shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And if you do lose your job, the prospects of getting another one in the business, or at least getting another one that pays you as well, as what you were making, are basically slim and none. And and that said, though, I mean, there are always going to be places for talented young people who have something to offer. Now, since I'm a main, I guess I'm the very definition of mainstream media, I don't feel like I have any business telling anyone how to go about things when so many of the opportunities that exist now are digital or in new media or less conventional outlets. And, and But I suppose at its roots, whatever the means of communication or distribution, uh, I, I guess you could say the basic tenets of the job maybe haven't changed so much. I don't know. It's just a thought. Um, and, and so for me personally, my approach, whether I was starting out in the business or whether I'm doing it now, continues to be pretty basic. And that is, first and foremost, inform. Um, my mind, information never goes out of style. So if you've got correct information and you can be first with it, more emphasis on correct than first, well, that's always going to, that's always going to work. That's always going to sell. Next up though, I, I think in addition to having information, you need to be able to provide insight. It's not enough just to deliver news, tell somebody this is what happened. You've got to have the ability to try to make some sense of it all. And, and frame it from all the angles, at least this is the way I do things, frame it from all the angles and let the reader or the viewer or the listener make his own determinations on what he thinks about this news after that. 
Don't tell somebody what to think, but give them the options on how they, they could or should think. Um, and third, it never hurts to be entertaining or fun or present things in a in an interesting or unique way. It, you know, this news and information and insight, it's not always rocket surgery. There needs to be some fun involved, but it's not stand-up comedy either. So you really have to kind of be careful on that front. And, um, you know, so it's so, so for me, it's information, insight, entertainment. And that's kind of how I've always tried to approach things. Now, I'm not sure how instructive any of this will be for for any of you young folks out there looking for jobs or looking to make your way in the business. And I, and I mostly hate talking about myself or my career or what amounts to ancient history when I, when I broke into this business because it is so different now. But I do get a lot of these questions and and so all I can tell you is this is my frame of reference, and, and so I offer it up, and I, I hope you can get a nugget or two out of here. And I'm, and I'm just going to kind of go through my path quickly, um, or maybe not so quickly, talk about some of the jobs that I had and what I learned along the way and and the decisions I made that I thought paid off or, or didn't. Now, I almost didn't get into journalism school. I wasn't accepted into Ryerson's journalism program when I applied in 1976, at least not right away. I, I was told I was on a waiting list. So while everybody else got their acceptances for universities and Ryerson or whatever, I got a, well, we're not sure about you just yet. And um, I was told that if some of the people who were initially accepted into Ryerson's journalism program didn't firm up, didn't accept the offer, then I would have a shot. Um, but I wasn't first on the waiting list, and that was kind of a wake-up call. Um, I always thought pretty highly of myself, um, but the reality, and probably too highly, but the reality was my credentials were, I guess, a little sketchy. Um, school always came fairly easy to me. High school did, but I never really applied myself. I figured I'd just do what I had to in order to get by and have a good time along the way. I guess I was mailing it in before I knew what mailing it in was all about. In grade nine, I think I got like a 75% average, and that was with very little effort. Um, with even less effort, it dropped to 70 in grade 10. And with even less effort, it dropped to around the 65 mark in grade 11. And with even less effort, it was probably in the low 60s by grade 12. But I knew that if I wanted to go to university, I'd really have to apply myself and pick things up in grade 13, so I did. And I got a 79% average, just missed being what they call an Ontario scholar, which was... 80% um, or better. Um, nevertheless, the, the, the marks I had were good enough to get me into pretty much any university at the time for a general arts degree. And, and that probably tells you how much times have changed because I hear so many parents now talk about their kids and how 85 is not cutting it at this school or that school for this program or that program. And on that count, I feel sorry for the kids today. It's, it seems to me there's so much pressure to perform, to have great marks, and there's so much competition to get into these university programs, and it's so intense, and, and kids are getting doors shut on them. Um, anyway, Ryerson certainly used marks as part of its evaluation um, when I applied. But they were more interested, being a polytechnic as opposed to a university, did you belong to the school newspaper? Did you belong to the school yearbook? What are your samples of writings for writing's sake, not something you were mandated to do like an essay? And, and quite frankly, I didn't have any of those. I was In high school, I was playing hockey. I was horsing around, just getting by, having fun. So maybe I didn't deserve to get into the Ryerson Journalism Program. 
And I think maybe they only took 80 people into the first year of the, the Ryerson journalism program. Um, but anyways, one thing led to another and I, um, I got to go down for an interview and, uh, with JD McFarland, the outgoing chairman of the journalism department, a very serious guy. And he kind of basically told me that my credentials weren't very good, but enough people had dropped out and didn't take the offer to, uh, to go into the Ryerson journalism program. So uh, I was being admitted. So it was, uh, I was being damned with faint praise, but I was just relieved that I had a school to go to and I was going to get my shot. Now, once I got into the journalism program, I was actually really taken aback. Now, make no mistake, there were some really outstanding people in my journalism class. Uh, Wendy Mesley, the CBC, Kirk Macon, Globe and Mail, Kevin Tibbles, who's done all sorts of broadcasting work in Canada and the United States, Scott White and John Valorzi, who were uh, big executives, uh, worked their way up through the ladder at Canadian Press, my pal Jerry Knott, who works for uh, Post Media, uh, Marty Benito, who became the editor of the Windsor Star, Chris Vanderdolen, uh, editorial writer at the Windsor Star, um, Kirk Lapointe, who was involved in, at the time, a lot of rock music stuff, and then went on to be a big deal with CTV and, and what have you. So ton, tons and tons of people who made big names for themselves in the business. But I got to be honest with you, too. I, you know, I had this, I had this inferiority complex going in. I was, I felt like I was the last guy admitted to the, to the journalism class that year. And then once I got to the school, I was looking around and I'm like, I gotta be, I'm better than that guy and I'm better than her and I'm better than him. And wow, how did I end up being on the bubble? I couldn't, couldn't imagine that. So you would have thought that would have been my wake up call. And uh, it wasn't though. I, I still approached Ryerson pretty much the same way I did when I went to high school and do, do enough to get by, have a good time. And, uh, and, and it was enough to get by. So uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Sioux Star in Sault Ste. Marie in my, uh, my second year. It was in the, a summer job. And, um, and I realized at that point that in this business, you're not always going to get what you want. Now, I only wanted to do sports and I really only wanted to do hockey. But the job I got at the Sioux Star was in the news department. Now, I did get to do two weeks of sports and it was a good two weeks to do sports that summer because Craig Hartsburg left the Sioux Greyhounds to sign with Birmingham of the WHA. That was the famous baby bulls um, all signing as underagers um, with Johnny Bassett in, uh, in Birmingham. And so while I was working in the sports department, I actually got to do some reporting and, and, and that was the first time I called Bill Waters because he represented some of the guys, Rob Ramage and Craig Hartsburg and, and, uh, and Gus Bedali, and, uh, who was the agent for Wayne Gretzky, amongst others. And um, I, I guess my takeaway from that first summer of work was you better do a good job at even the things you don't like, because it seems to me there's a lot of things that I don't like or that things you're not going to like in the business. And I should also point out, and, and this was my point off the top, um, jobs were so much more plentiful then. I mean, all the newspapers came on campus at Ryerson and they interviewed everybody and they hired all sorts of 10, tw Ottawa Citizen, the London Free Press, the Kitchener-Waterloo Record, the Windsor Star, Southern, Southern newspapers had a great chain back then and then there was the Thompson chain and then there were independents and, and uh, 
you know, the, these newspapers would hire six, eight, ten, twelve summer students for the summer. And it was like, didn't realize it at the time. It, it felt competitive, but compared to the way things are now, my goodness. So anyways, um, I, I got a, uh, a promise from the Sioux Star that if I wanted to come back the following year on graduation, I could for the summer. Um, but maybe if possible, if somebody left, um, I might get a full-time job there. So I, I love the Sioux Star and it was great. But, you know, I wanted to get something a little closer to home, a bigger city, a bigger paper. Um, you know, maybe like the Citizen in Ottawa or the Spectator or the London Free Press. So um, I guess one of the tips that I might provide would be um, don't be afraid to be a brash asshole. It doesn't always work. It probably doesn't work that often, um, but it did for me. In, in third year at Ryerson, um, the Hamilton Spectator came on. And they did, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, they, they just requested interviews, um, information, resumes, clippings, and what have you um, for uh, a summer job. And so I submitted everything, and a few weeks or a month later, they posted a list of the people that were being invited to the spectator in Hamilton on a Saturday for what they called a day of testing, basically a competitive day. And, and they, they invited about, I don't know, it had to be at least 20 people. And I wasn't one of them. And I was like, are you kidding me? My, um, you know, that summer that I was being admitted to Ryerson as the last guy in, over the three years, I, I thought pretty highly of myself and I thought I'm way better than a lot of these people. And, there were like 20 people invited to Hamilton for this day of testing, and I'm not one of them. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. And so I thought, oh, I'll just have to go try somewhere else. If I have to go to the Sioux Star, back to the Sioux Star, I'll go to the Sioux Star. No big But I didn't. At the time, the Hamilton Spectator was run by what we called the Scottish Mafia. Alex Beer, John Gibson, I forget, there were a couple of other Scots, but they were all the, the you know, managing editor, city editor, publisher, whatever. And um, right around that time, this would have been, what, 70, 78, 79, um, there was a bit of a scandal in, in uh, Scottish soccer. I want to say the player's name. He played for Glasgow Celtic. I think his name was Willie Johnstone. And he failed a drug test. And so... I decided to take a wild shot at it. And I sent a letter to Alex Beer and John Gibson and the, the Scottish Mafia guys at the, uh, at the Hamilton Spectator. And I basically said, I think the opening line was, are you guys on drugs? I just saw the list of people that you posted for to come down for the Saturday thing. And, uh, and I'm not on there and I can't believe it. And uh, I, I know that, you know, you, Scottish soccer players right now are having a problem with uh, taking drugs. I, I can't explain you not putting me on that list uh, other than to say you guys must be on drugs too. So I never gave it too much thought, but lo and behold, I got a call at the school one day and, and a message asking if I'd be able to make it down to Hamilton for the day of testing at, at the Spectator. So I didn't know if I was being brought down there 
to be served my lunch and uh, taught a lesson for being insolent or whether I was actually going to get an opportunity to um, to get a job there. And uh, it turned out to be the latter, and we did the day of testing. Lincoln Alexander um, was there, and there was a news conference, and we had to write a story on that, and then they sent us out in the city, just, just kind of go out, get us get us a story, and come back here in, in 90 minutes. So we went out and did that story. And then there was an interview process, and and uh, they actually were pretty good in the interview process. And they said, oh, you know, some, of the, some of the best writing we've seen was in that letter you sent. You really think we're on drugs, do you? And uh, anyways, went through the process. And sure enough, they offered me um, the summer job there. But um, when I told them that I had a full-time opportunity at the Sioux Star, they told me I should take that. But it was up to me to make the decision because they guaranteed that none of the summer students we're going to be brought on full-time at the end of the summer at the spectator so anyways long story short i um i took the job at the sioux star but you know that was one of those instances and i wouldn't recommend it all the time where you um you kind of go out on a limb and uh, do something a little bit outlandish because it could sometimes um pay off um i got the full-time job at the sioux star um because of mark stone's dad um rob stone um, was a sports reporter in the Sioux Star. I'd worked with him the, the previous summer, played slow pitch with him. Uh, he decided to get out of the newspaper business and move to Winnipeg to be in the aerospace industry. And uh, he was leaving at a time when the Sioux Star decided that for a month or two they wouldn't replace him. And uh, they called me up and they said they'd, uh, um, they'd hire me full-time right out of school and that was in the sports department. So that was, that was even better. And going to the Sioux Star was great because it's great to work at a place where you get great mentors. And and the Sioux Star was a, was a real good quality newspaper. The managing editor was Doug Milroy, and and they had some some real good people, and they took their journalism seriously. And I worked for two guys, Alex Mitchell and Bill Crawford. Now, Alex recently passed away after a battle with cancer. Um, and Alex was a grinder. He worked hard. He was a go-go-go guy and hard-nosed when he needed to be, but he could laugh and not take himself too seriously. And Bill Crawford was my sports editor there too. And um, I believe he's still at Lake Superior State College. He'd, he'd been doing the play-by-play -play and athletic director and everything to do with uh, Lake State hockey and athletics. Really, really bright guy from Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And one of the things that he told me that sticks with me to this day is that anybody can do a really good job on an assignment they're excited about doing. What separates a real pro and uh, and everybody else is the guy who will, and, and the guy who will always be in demand is someone who can do an A plus job on the shittiest assignment or the one that no one wants to do. And and that really kind of stuck with me. It made sense to me. I took that to heart. So I, I tried to do my best work on stories I hated every minute of, and I just figured it was my payback for screwing the pooch all the way through high school and, and, and most of Ryerson. Now that said, I was still focused on one thing and one thing only. I only wanted to write hockey. So I'd work my ass off when I got to do a, sent to do a stock car racing story at Northern Raceway. But all I really wanted to do was cover the Sioux Greyhounds. Now I, I realized pretty quickly, if you just let your bosses decide what you're going to get assigned to, you're going to get a lot of assignments you don't want to do. So I, I realized the value then of, of coming up with good ideas on your own and, and my ideas, doing things that I wanted to do. So, you know, 
I'd come up with, I could come up with some non-obvious hockey stories, not just, I wouldn't just want to cover a Greyhound practice or a game, but try to come up with a feature story or, or something that was different, different enough to intrigue my boss into saying, you know what, you've done enough Greyhounds this week, why don't you go to the stock car races? And uh, so I made a conscious decision to be a specialist as opposed to a generalist. And if you don't know the difference between the terminology, it's simply this. Either you focus really narrow on one thing, or you, you know, the world is your oyster, you're gonna try and be good at everything. I wanted to be excellent at one thing as opposed to good at everything. And uh, I wanted all hockey, all the time. And I decided this is what I'm good at, this is what I wanna do. I'm gonna become an expert and an authority on this one thing. And I'm going to try to make myself so invaluable in this very narrow little world. And, and there's obviously a risk involved. You could end up being really one-dimensional, but I didn't care. I decided it was, I was going to make it or break it as a specialist. And I, I still realized that you have to stay sharp on other things. And, and, I, and I recognize that you, you, need to, you need backup. Like, there's no guarantee that I was going to fulfill my dream of becoming a hockey writer. So I recognized, well, you know what, this business, you know, someone's got to write the headline, someone's got to edit the copy, somebody's got to put these pages together. And so I never shied away from always doing that kind of stuff while I was doing the stuff that I really loved doing, my passion, which was writing hockey. So, um, you know, I think it's really important, especially today, it's all well and good to say I want to be on air or I want to write, I want to do this. Think about the people who don't get seen, the people behind the camera, um, the support staff that makes it possible for the on-air people or the, the people who, who do the, the, the writing. Um, there, there's so many opportunities, sometimes maybe more opportunities to do that stuff. So don't leave yourself short and give yourself a chance for all those secondary or supplemental opportunities that exist. Now, to give you some idea of how much things have changed, um, and, and how the, the marketplace is so much more difficult now than it was back then. So I'm working freelance at the Globe and Mail and doing what I'm doing, freelance all over the place. And so I'm less than three years graduate. It's been less than three years since I graduated from Ryerson. And on my way, I would leave the Globe and Mail building at midnight or one in the morning when my shift was over. And as I walked out the front door, I would turn around and I gave the Globe and Mail building the finger. And I would jump in my little Volkswagen bug car that I had, and I would hop on the Gardner Expressway. And if you know Toronto geography at all, as you drive along the Gardner, on the right-hand side is the Toronto Star building at Young Street, 1 Young Street. And I would give the Toronto Star the finger as I drove by. And a little further along, if you look out the, your driver's side window, um, towards King Street that runs parallel to the Gardner Expressway is the Toronto Sun Building. And I would give the Toronto Sun Building the finger as I went by. And I did that because I presumed and assumed that I should be working there as a hockey writer. And if that sounds ridiculous that you're less than three years out of journalism school and you think you should be at a major Toronto daily newspaper, the only reason I thought that is because there were others that were doing it. There were other people that I went to school with and that, that were doing that. And I wasn't. I was pissed off about it and I was starting to get frustrated and thinking you know what maybe this journalism thing's not going to work out um, and uh, 
So I, I was sort of feeling sorry for myself and why not me? And, and I, I do laugh about it today. So little rejection, so little time, you know, giving, giving the finger to, to these major Toronto dailies because they wouldn't hire me. So I actually started thinking about being a policeman, a cop in Toronto. And then sort of out of the blue, the hockey news, who I'd been doing freelance work for, some writing, um, they said, hey, listen, um, we might have an opening here. I said, oh, yeah, what's the position? They said, editor-in-chief. And I'm like, you're kidding me? Um, uh, Tom Murray, who was from uh, New York, Boston guy originally, but from New York, uh, um, was going back to the States, and uh, they needed an editor. And I... I kind of ticked off some of the boxes, even though I was only 25 years old. And, and I've, I said before about finding and doing the things that nobody else wants to do. You know, the headline writing, the copy editing, some of the other grunt work that I did. Not that headline and copy editing is grunt work, but um, a lot of the things I did at the Sioux Star that wasn't writing about hockey were things that I would need to do as, as an editor at the, at the Hockey News. So lo and behold, I ended up getting that job. And, um, you know, I'd made a lot of connections in the hockey world. I could work cheap. Um, so there I was, 25 years old, editor-in-chief of the Hockey News. I, I closed the door and said to myself, now what the F do I do? So, you know, if there's, um, if there's a review here, um, as you look through it, you know, sometimes you got to take a chance, as I did when I told the Scottish Mafia at the Hamilton Spectator they were on drugs. Um... I think one of the other messages is F the dog at your own peril because um, I think today you can't get away with the laziness, the sheer laziness that I had when I was going to school. Uh, you got to do a good job at the things you don't like, be a pro on the stuff you hate, and try to decide what you are, a specialist or a generalist. And then if you have to, take a chance and bet on yourself, um, as I did when uh, when I left the Sioux to, to come home. But I understand now the climate is so bad, and, and you could do all those things and so many more, and there's no jobs to be had. So from afar, what I would say, uh, what I would also say is this. Um, what, is it that you're, what is it you're good at or you think you're good at? What's your number one attribute? Really boil it down. Play to that strength. Work it. I mean, you know, if you're five foot two and you've got really bad acne, you're not likely to get a job as an anchor. You know, if you've got a speech impediment, they're not going to put you on air, um, just the way it is. Um, and, and sometimes you need to be told, for the position you're after, you don't have the right attributes. So the next thing I would say is, what's your point of difference? What is it that makes you so much different than every other person who's trying to get a job? And when what you need to do is you need to find out what that point of difference is and then heighten it. Um, the next thing I would say would be to try and make yourself indispensable. Do the shitty jobs no one else wants to do and do them really well. So then when the bosses are looking at the names of employees they may want to lay off, they may come to yours and say, we can't get rid of that guy. He or she does the worst jobs here and he does, the, he or she does them really well. You know, and uh, you always got a plan that maybe the boss thinks, who's going to do that crappy job? It might be me if I get rid of this guy. So I'm not going to get rid of them. Um, or that might be your foot in the door. And, I, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It's the best of times and the worst of times in, in media. Worst of times, obvious. Shrinking market. Mainstream media is in the tank. Everybody's losing their job. 
You know, and how does a young man or woman find a job in this business when so many established people in their prime are being let go? And yet it's also in many ways the best of times because with unconventional media, the blogs, the websites, social media, the advancement of the technology, you can be your own production company. And if you're good, if you've got something to offer, people are going to notice and you're going to make your way. And the media market's always going to be open to really gifted, young, talented people. But you just need an outlet. And now more than ever, that outlet may be available to just about anybody. So it's, it, it really is a double-edged sword. Terrible industry um, demographics right now, but new media that gives anybody who's talented a legit opportunity to show what they can do. Anyways, if you're trying to make your way in this business, the last thing in the world you need is some old dodgy old fart like me telling you don't do it, there are no jobs, you'll never make it. So I'll never do that. But you also don't need some Pollyanna, chase your dreams and you're going to be so successful. Man, oh man, it's a hard business. And, and I thought it was hard for me breaking into the business. But looking back, compared to, relative to what's going on today, it was actually easy. So if it's going to be hard, I would say only this. Do, do yourself a favor. Take the long, really hard look in the mirror, literally and figuratively. Be really, really hard on yourself. Look at your strengths. Look at your weaknesses. And, and try to figure out a plan that plays to your strengths, or at least one that minimizes your weaknesses, or something that allows you to turn those weaknesses into strengths. So don't start at the end point. Don't, I, 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 my advice to anybody in this business would be don't tell yourself what you want to be, ask yourself what you're suited to be. What's your best chance to get hired to do something, even if it's not necessarily the dream job that you've always wanted. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a big fan of the Ryan Holiday books, The Obstacle is the Way and the Ego is the, and ego is the Enemy. And um, uh, Ego is the Enemy um, has some really good stuff, I think, for young people who are trying to make their way um, in, in this, in our business in particular. And some of the, the notes that I made from Ego and the Enemy, the ability to evaluate one's own ability is the most important skill of all. Practice seeing yourself at a distance. Detachment is an ego antidote. Think big, but act and live small. Facts are better than dreams was how Winston Churchill put it. Um, there's, there's something in ego as the enemy called the canvas strategy. And it says, imagine if for every person you met, you thought of some way to help them, something you could do for them. That's what the canvas strategy is about, helping yourself by helping others. And it goes on to say, maybe it's coming up with ideas to hand over to your boss. Find people, thinkers, up-and-comers to introduce them to each other. Cross wires to create new sparks. Find what nobody else wants to do and do it. Find inefficiencies and waste and redundancies. Identify leaks and patches to free up resources for new areas. Produce more than everyone else and give your ideas away. The Canvas strategy is there for you at any time. And the final conclusion on that, the person who clears the path ultimately controls its direction. So kind of an interesting philosophy, give your work away. Um, but nevertheless, these are difficult times and you've got to look for every little edge you possibly can. Uh, anyways, I've prattled on long enough. 
I don't know if anything I said there is any help, but since I do get asked so often by so many people about my career starting out, how I did it, how they might do it, what advice I have for them, maybe you glean one little thing out of all that that could help in some way. I hope so. Good luck. It's, it's a really hard road, but hey, someone's got to make it. Why not you? And, uh, and if you go about things the right way um, and all the stars line up, it could be you. So on that note, uh, that's it for the uh, Mail It In March Part 2 edition of the Bobcast. Um, mail it in for all it's got the rest of the month. And uh, we'll come back at you the last Friday of the regular season, just before the playoffs begin. So uh, look forward to putting in a, a full shift and honest effort in uh, in April once Mail It In March is all over. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Go Rangers. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.